Listener's warning. There'll be some topics covered in today's episode that are not very appropriate for listeners under the age of 13. Some of these topics will include crimes against humanity that will involve men, women, and sadly children. History has a way of showing future generations why it is important not to follow those in presumed authority blindly. This episode is one that reveals some of the darkest sides of humanity and organized religion. Thank you for remaining open-minded. By the year 1627, the European witch trials had come to their peak when the Prince Bishop of Bamberg initiated the construction of the Malfitz House, the largest and most well-known prison in Germany to house those accused of witchcraft. Also known as the Druden House, this building became the most brutal witch prison to be erected during the ongoing witch frenzies that spread across Europe between the 14th and 17th centuries. There would be tales of false accusations leading to the most horrific torture and public deaths recorded in those times outside of war. The most chilling part of this tale from the past is that the Bamberg Witch Commission was the most ruthless and almost no one was safe from being accused of being in a league with the devil. By the time the third wave of witch trials had ended in the town of Bamberg, Germany, over 40% of the men, women, and children were accused of black magic, tortured, and burned at the stake. In part one of my two-part exploration of the Bamberg witch trials, I will cover what led to the most horrific witch hunt and executions that Europe had witnessed in the Holy Roman Empire of medieval ages. Welcome to the Dark Side of Lightwork. I'm Wynne Thornley. In life, I'm a professionally practicing esoteric teacher and channel to the ethers, specializing in demystifying the dark arts and the paranormal. I am also a supernatural nerd and do a lot of personal research into things that go bump in the night. My fascination with the unknown began when I was a kid, due to having my own misunderstood psychic experiences. I believe my lifelong fascination with the strange and unusual has prepared me for the work I'm called to do now, taking me places other lightworkers will not go. These experiences have taught me a lot about how many fallacies we are told and actually believe about the world of the unknown. Join me as I share with you what I have learned about the realms of the paranormal, mystics of the past, and places that might make you feel uneasy. I want to lift the veil a little bit and take the Hollywood out of the supernatural and metaphysics. And if you like what you hear, follow along by subscribing and please Tell your friends. I wanted to start this podcast episode thanking you for your patience. There was a pause in between episodes due to a massive project I was working on that launched recently. I'm happy to announce that I officially launched a virtual course hub called the Dark Arts Schoolhouse. This is where I will now host all of my esoteric mediumship courses and other fun auxiliary workshops to complement the more comprehensive learning experiences. To launch my new school, I opened up enrollment for the foundation offering empathic mediumship. This is a 26-week journey transforming your relationship with your empathic nature and mediumship gifts, and there are already students wandering the virtual halls. Now that I've taken care of this project and some personal deep healing of my own, I can settle back into my natural podcasting rhythm for you. Part of that is expressing my gratitude. I wanted to send a big shout out to Michelle Smith and Don Grem. 
Thank you so much for joining my Patreon community just recently. Your support of the Dark Side of Light work is so appreciated and will help me make this podcast and future events way easier to create. If you wanted to learn more or even join my exclusive community, which further supports the expansion of the Dark Side of Light work and the haunted field trips that are to come, I invite you to check out my show notes after the episode ends to explore all the links that I have waiting for you. Now, on to the show. The topic of this episode is quite unsettling, and will take us through some of the darker hallways in humanity's history. Even though it does not always feel this way, a large percentage of our global community is in a time now where it is fairly safe to explore aspects of life, beliefs, and spiritual practices that were once considered punishable by death. That being said, there are still parts of our diverse planet that have conflicts as a result of religious or spiritual practices. Many countries still openly conduct modern witch hunts to this day, including China and parts of the Middle East. I'm a born and raised Canadian and can honestly say that I grew up in an inner city community that was fairly diverse and welcoming of many faiths. Many families I personally knew were pretty much atheist, but I was aware of many people in my community identifying as one of the many branches of Christianity, indigenous practices, Buddhists, Hindus, you know, or they were deeply spiritual in some other way. I grew up in a home where there was little to no exploration of religion or spiritualism, and this was due to my parents' disconnect from the religious upbringing they experienced. It was a negative experience for them, so they chose to leave that facet of life open to investigation for my sister and I. I did a little exploring as a kid, but had only become fascinated with religion, spiritual and metaphysical studies once my son was born. Before that, I didn't know that I was supposed to believe in something bigger than the now. When my son came along, I had more purpose, so I began exploring world religions at around the age of 30. Nowadays, I personally feel aligned with esotericism, which loosely means I'm open to experiencing the divine within all things and at my own direction. As far as those who align with esotericism are concerned, God is too big for one religion, and so all world religions and beliefs are a piece of the puzzle. My beliefs are always challenged, and I'm open to shifting my perspective when new evidence appears in my world. I'm curious about all things, and have never personally felt fear for my own free-thinking ways. If my reality was 1626 Bamberg, Germany, it would be a very different narrative. I would be burned at the stake 100%, and this is deeply disturbing to me. Throughout our human history, Every single religion and spiritual belief system has been feared and challenged by the masses at some point. It depends on what is deemed popular or enforced by the current leaders. Today's podcast episode will take a look into a time when it was witchcraft that was feared and the witches that were put on trial. The witch prison and trials in the small medieval town of Bamberg, Germany was the end result from over 300 years of the European witch hunts that began in the early 1300s in Scotland. So we cannot really talk about the climax of the European witch trials in Bamberg until we take a quick look into the past. Witch hunts were not new, not even in the 13th and 14th century, though there 
hasn't always been a collective fear around the crones, hags, and the reclusive folks in the woods. Magic was a daily part of life in medieval Europe and Scandinavia. But after the spread of Christianity and the development of the Holy Roman Empire of Western and Central Europe, many of the pagan and Norse practices were converted to the monotheistic practices of the Christian Bible. Over time, people were taught to believe that witches were outcasts of society and had magical powers to harm or heal. Either way, they should be feared and avoided. By the middle of the 14th century, this attitude would only amplify, and so began the poorly documented history of the European witch hunts. As I was digging through all the literature there was to find online and on my bookshelves, there seems to be a couple of logical reasons Central and Western Europe became crazed with exposing witchcraft and hunting those who practiced black magic. The first reason I will cover is of the superstitious variety. Historians figure that the witch hunts intensified so much in the Holy Roman Empire between the years 1500 and 1700 due to a mini ice age. Drastic changes in weather patterns greatly affected crop production with the shortened and cooler than average growing seasons. Just before Bamberg moved into the worst stages of their witch trials, an unseasonal bout of frost killed many of the region's crops, putting pressure on food rations. The rural folk needed someone to blame, and it was the storm witches that were the target, with many others being pulled into the worst witch trials of the 1600s. There's documentation that I read through my searching that talked about stories involving farmers actually hiring the town witch. Sometimes it was to bless their crops and encourage a profitable growing season. Sometimes they hired a witch to curse their neighbor's land. This could be over jealousy or just to see their competition fail. And I'm sure there was many more reasons for this behavior. On the flip side, I also read that some witches went into the blackmail business. They would threaten the farmers with a poor crop production or disease for their animals. But of course, these witches could help these farmers out if they pay a fee in order to protect their fields and livestock from curses and hexes. So it isn't really too hard to imagine the farmers turning on the witches of the area because it seems the fear of black magic was ingrained in the collective of the time. The second and more logical reason for the rise of the European witch trials was political and religious in nature. Many of the sources I combed through talked a lot about the connection to the Thirty Year War, which was going on at the same time as the peak of the European witch hunts. The Thirty Year War began in 1618 and ended in 1648. I didn't know much about the Thirty Year War before researching this episode, so for those of you who are in the same position as I, here's a short summary. The Thirty Year War is considered one of the most destructive wars in Middle European history, claiming the lives of between 4.5 and 8 million civilians and military alike. It is estimated that Germany alone lost up to 60% of its population during the Thirty Year War. There was major religious unrest going on in Europe at this time, with Reformation being a hot topic. And learning about Reformation is another deep dive into history I was largely unaware of due to the lack of a religious upbringing myself. I found it impossible to skim over what Reformation was all about, as it was a pretty big deal. I invite you to check my show note links to learn more about all the things I'm covering today, but I will attempt to give you some decent Coles notes on all the material as I go. If you're not already aware, let me share with you a little bit about what I learned about Reformation. 
Reformation was a major religious movement that signified the end of the Middle Ages in Europe. This movement caused a split in the Catholic Church and resulted in the forming of the two opposing groups of faith within Western Christianity. These groups are known today as the Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church. Reformation involved the group identifying as the Protestants, publicly posing a religious and political challenge to the papal authority, you know, the Pope. These challenges focused on what they considered to be errors, abuses, and discrepancies made by the Catholic Church. Some of these errors, abuses, and discrepancies described by the Protestants include observing archaic traditions like papal supremacy, celibacy, indulgences made by the church, and the concept of purgatory. And please remember, this is a super brief overview. With the Protestants making noise about shifting back into a simpler style of worship, the Holy Roman Empire answered the Protestant movement with counter-reformation, which only further divided Western and Central Europe. This led to the Thirty Year War. The war became neighbors against neighbors as each side, the Protestants and Roman Catholics, tried to eliminate the other from their neighborhoods and through violence if necessary. Lots of accusations of witchcraft were also done at this time to try and expose those who gave their loyalty to the Protestant movement, especially within the borders of the Holy Roman Empire that included parts of today's France, Germany, and Italy. After sorting through all that information, I decided to refocus my research back to Bamberg and the hundred years prior to the building of the Malfitz House. One name kept coming up as an instigator of the witch hunts at the time and from the highest level of authority outside of the church. Most of my research points towards King James I of England as a major influencer of reigniting the witch hunts in Europe in the late 1500s and it stands to reason his actions made it easier for the ball to get rolling. King James I was the initial monarch to unite England, Scotland, and Ireland under one crown. This occurred when King James took over the crown of England after the death of Queen Elizabeth I in March of 1603. But before that, King James I was the ruler of Scotland. At that time, he was known as King James Stuart VI. And this is where his first real connection to witchcraft occurred. Legend says that in an act of treason, King James Stuart VI of Scotland was attacked by a coven of Tempestari. These are witches who were believed to have the abilities to manipulate the weather and conjure storms. The year was 1589, and this was a blissful time for King James Stuart. Scotland had made an alliance with Denmark by James marrying a woman of importance of their land. As the story goes, the witch's coven gathered with the intention to create a storm so big, their king's boat would be capsized and route home, and all on board would perish. Though it is true that the seas were very rough on him and his new bride during their journey home, King James even lost one of his fleet boats along the way. Both officials in Scotland and Denmark believed this to be a work of witchcraft, and apparently this witch's coven was said to have come forward on their own accord to confess to taking responsibility for the vicious storms endured by the king. Each confessed witch was then punished by death for their involvement, and next King James set into motion the beginning of the first witch hunts in Scotland. The thing is, before his visit to Denmark, 
King James was aware of witches and witchcraft, but had not learned of the evolving view of witches by the Holy Roman Empire. While in Denmark meeting his new wife, King James learned of Denmark's adaptation of the new Roman Catholic ideals about the danger of witches. This new concept stated that witches actually turned away from God and took allegiance with the devil. So the danger of witches and witchcraft was fresh in King James's mind. The most unusual part of the witch trials of Scotland in King James's rule was that he personally injected himself into one particular case after the Tempestari trials, that of Mary Napier in the year 1591. Mary had been arrested for just consulting a witch and for not being a witch herself. This visit to the witch was said to involve intentions of treason once again against the king, and so King James attended the interrogation and witness process himself. Mary was eventually found not guilty and freed, and this deeply disturbed King James. After the failed trial of Mary Napier, King James Stuart of Scotland set out to become an expert in the field of witchcraft and necromancy. He even wrote an 80-page book on his findings called Demonology, which I will expand on in a little bit here. Well before the Bamberg witch trials, the way in which you identified, tortured, and executed a witch was already pretty standardized, and there's a good reason for this. There are a couple of popular handbooks that were published in these medieval times that the bishops would have their inquisition and torture staff study up on. The most famous of these books is called the Malleus Malficerum, also known as Hammer the Witches. It was published in the year 1487 by the discredited Catholic clergyman Heinrich Kramer. In his life's work, Kramer detailed how to create a successful witch hunt. There was a proper way of doing things, you know, to keep things on the up and up with a higher power, and this is what Hammer the Witches was all about. I found it interesting who the Holy Roman Empire considered a witch. In medieval Europe, this didn't take much. To be blunt, a witch was anyone considered to be any nonconformist to the Holy Roman Empire. This included, but was not limited to, the Protestants, anyone practicing any kind of pagan beliefs, or anyone who was actually accused by another of being in allegiance with the devil. The only thing the Holy Roman Empire deemed to be worse than a witch was being a heretic, or anyone who used the word of God or the biblical texts in a way the Holy Roman Empire deemed unfit. So basically, a witch could be of any social status and could even be aligned with the church. They could be poor and living in the woods. They could be a long-time respected townsperson or even a known criminal. If you had too much money, hey, maybe the devil helped you out. If you were poor, then this would represent what the devil took away. If you spoke against any respected member of society, you could be a witch. If you had knowledge on herbs and ancient healing practices, this is where things got a little bit sticky. Not only would the townspeople call upon you for your services, like the farmers I mentioned before, but the elemental healers would also be the first to be accused of using witchcraft. In the midst of the fear and accusations, there were a few free-thinking men of the state to speak out against the witch trials. Reginald Scott of Kent, who was an esteemed member of the English Parliament, was one of them. Scott expressed his skepticism of witchcraft claims with the publishing of his book, The Discovery of Witchcraft. 
Scott released this book in an effort to shift focus away from the old-fashioned and superstitious witch hunt manual, the Malleus Malficerum, which was published by Kramer almost a hundred years prior to this. Scott released The Discovery of Witchcraft in the year 1584, and it is regarded as one of the first books available to the public that is actually written about witchcraft and conjuring from a skeptic's perspective. Scott pointed out the lack of solid evidence in most of the documented cases that involved accusations of witchcraft. He also publicly expressed his lack of belief in the existence of anybody really practicing black magic, going as far as to call out the Holy Roman Empire for being superstitious and expressing his revulsion towards their barbaric torture sessions on the accused. Though Reginald Scott died without being persecuted for witchcraft, which would have been the norm, the ruling King James ordered all of Scott's work to be burned, but luckily, many copies survived. King James released his own contribution to literature that supported the witch hunts in response to Scott's discovery of witchcraft, and that was his 80-page effort called Demonology, which was released in the year 1597. Under King James' rule in Scotland, the witch hunts would escalate, with the new concept of witches now being in full alliance with the devil being enforced. His book would further support the dangers of witchcraft with sections dedicated to known witches, rituals, spells, and communications with the dead. By the time King James Stuart evolved into King James I of England in 1603, James would begin to separate himself from the witch craze spreading across the Holy Roman Empire thanks to him. James found England's view on witchcraft and the hunts as trivial and superstitious. The people of England were more sophisticated and exploring metaphysics through philosophy and the arts. Though the witch hunts and trials still took place in the regions of King James's rule, he began to separate himself from involvement until his death in 1625. As a result, things calmed down in Scotland and England, but the same was not true for other areas of the Holy Roman Empire. When the witch frenzies finally entered Germany in the late 1500s, the social climate became very stressful and suspicious. Not only were the non-conformists targeted, but anyone who would so much as speak out against how the Holy Roman Empire was handling the ongoing witch hunts were themselves accused of witchcraft and sent to the Inquisition. It didn't matter your social status or official ranking among the church or state. To wrap up this episode, I wanted to talk about the building in which the accused were contained and why it was unique compared to the other witch prisons of its time. Let me begin by talking about its location. In the time of its witch trials, Bamberg was a modest-sized town located in Upper Franconia, Germany, along the River Rignitz, close to the adjoining River Main. Established in the 9th century, Bamberg was named after the regional Babenberch Castle. Unique and aesthetically pleasing, even by today's standards, Bamberg's old town is known to be one of the most beautiful in all of Germany. Back in the Middle Ages, Bamberg was governed by the Holy Roman Empire under the watchful eye of its reigning prince bishop. Close to Bamberg is two neighboring towns of interest. The first to the northwest is Zeal M. Main, reflecting that Zeal harbors the River Main, and further west is Würzburg. Zeal was the common ground between both Bamberg and Würzburg. 
as the two towns had conflicts in the area of religion and trade in medieval times. As a side note, the towns of Würzburg, Trier, and Fulda conducted their own witch trials. Those three German towns alongside Bamberg were the most detrimental to the town's population among all of the hunts conducted within the borders of Germany and Central Europe. In the year 1626, the Prince Bishop of Bamberg, Johann Jörgs Fuchs von Dorheim, was the third Prince Bishop of Bamberg since the late 1500s to approve the continuance of the witch trials in the town and surrounding areas. Bamberg's territory was close to the Catholic Protestant religious border, and the goal of the new Prince Bishop was to create a godly state in accordance to the ideals of the Counter-Reformation. It was Johann Jörg's greatest intention to make the population obedient, devout, and conformally Catholic. In order to fulfill the Prince Bishop's desires, he ordered the creation of a building that would serve as a jail, courthouse, and execution site for those accused of witchery. Not only would this building make the whole process more efficient by limiting the distance between the three sites, which were originally spread across the town from one another, but the Inquisition could also hide a lot of what was happening to the accused throughout the whole process. The building itself is long gone. It was torn down a few years after the Bamberg trials ended abruptly, but there were papers and woodcuttings found that can give us an idea of how it was all laid out. Inside the beautifully constructed building, there were a total of 28 cells. 26 of them were single cells that held those who were on trial, and the other two were group cells that held those awaiting their fate. As you walk through the portal into the building, there was an inscription that you would read overhead that said, quote, Let it be a reminder of justice from which the gods cannot ignore. Unquote. The walls were covered in biblical scripture to remind the witch whose house they had entered. There was a courtroom, torture room, and cathedral all built within the remaining spaces. After the building was completed, the Bamberg Malfitz house would become known as the largest, most violent, and most famous witch prison of the entire European witch hunts. It is estimated that 900 souls were put on trial and ultimately executed in Bamberg between the years of 1626 and 1631. But due to poor record keeping, this number could be higher. I will end this episode here. In part two of my exploration of the Bamberg witch trials, I will cover what happened to the accused once they entered the Bamberg witch prison and what occurred to bring the trials to an abrupt end in the year 1631. It will be a darker episode that will explore the torture and execution aspects of the witch trials, as well as what we have learned about the real reasons behind this reign of terror and how today's Bamberg reflects their dark history. Thank you so much for popping by and spending time with me today. I really appreciate you being here. I'm excited for the growth and change happening for season two, and I would love to hear your feedback. The Dark Side of Light work is where I will be exploring topics of the strange and unusual that I have longed research. My intention is to bring light to the darker subjects others shy away from in spirituality, energy work, and the paranormal. Show topics will include mysterious places like the Bamberg Witch Prison, infamous hauntings, stories of the unusual, and psychics from recent history and antiquity. I invite you to leave a message at my Anchor FM page letting me know how you like it. You can also share your personal experience with a show topic or even a show idea. 
I listen to each message and may include your idea or recording in a future episode. Since I'm an independent podcast host and producer, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, a follow on Spotify, or leaving a review on where you are listening to me right now would really help others find my show. If you like what you hear on the Dark Side of Light work, any kind of sharing is caring in my mind, and I'm just glad that you're here. Outside of my podcast platforms, you can find me on my Patreon page and social media by searching for The Dark Side of Light Work with Wynne Thornley. If you like bonus content, I invite you to join my Patreon community. Your contribution helps with the growth and expansion of The Dark Side of Light Work, and I have lots planned for exclusive content for my loyal Patreon community as the year rolls out, with the first of many virtual haunted field trips already being uploaded. Any support is welcome, and I feel grateful for all the support I've already received, so thank you so much. In my next episode, I'm going to share what I learned about the darker aspects of the Bamberg Malfitz house. The research aspect of part two is not for the faint of heart, and I will try to present it in a respectful manner. Thank you once again for listening until the end, and I look forward to dropping the next episode really soon. So until then, take good care.